So this morning, we're looking at a, a story in Acts, Acts 17. Um, I really like this story for various reasons, but Acts 17, 16 through 34. Uh, before, you'll find the words on the screen behind me or if you've got it with you on the screen in front of you. Uh, before we read it, let's pray together. Again, Lord, we're just grateful for, for this time, this space where, where we can just stop. And rest. And pay attention to you. And to listen to your voice. Thank you for this book. Come Holy Spirit upon us. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to understand you more deeply. Help us to, to get to know your heart, God, and who you are and who you want us to be. Speak, for we are listening. Amen. So Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for his partners. He's greatly distressed to see that Athens was full of all kinds of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues, in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who just happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some, asked, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some very strange things to our ears, and we would like to know what they all mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> Let me read that part again. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there just spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So before Twitter and Facebook, it seems that people like actually gathered together face-to-face -face in a social setting and spoke to one another about ideas. That's fascinating. I remember a time like that. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he's like, I see this thing to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you who this unknown God is. So cool. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one person, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I get it. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. That's curious. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. We will go that far. He lists some names, Luke who wrote Acts, lists some names so that if anyone is reading this, they can be like, I'm going to go talk to Dionysius. I'm going to go talk to Demarius and ask them about this. I just think that's fascinating. So we're going to begin to, to think about this little, little story uh, by first uh, using our imagination. So I want you to use your imagination. Okay, imagine... You are by yourself in a coffee shop. You've got a nice hot cup of joe, and you've settled down because you've got some extra time, uh, and you're going to just be by yourself in a coffee shop, and you are going to read a book, and you're so excited about it. So you got your cup of joe, you're sitting down, you're about, to, you're about to read, but sitting beside you or nearby is a group of people, and they're talking about something that's very interesting to you. They're talking about they're talking about spiritual things. And so you sort of begin to eavesdrop on their conversation, careful not to let them know that you're listening in because that would be awkward. So, or maybe it's not a coffee shop. Maybe you're just walking through doing your grocery shopping in Hy-Vee or Aldi or wherever it is you get your grocery and there's some people having a conversation in the middle of an aisle and they're talking about spiritual things. Or maybe you're at school at the lunch table and you're hearing some fellow students talking about some spiritual things. Or maybe you're at work and you're listening to some of your coworkers having a conversation about spiritual things. The setting doesn't matter. It's just you. You're not involved in the conversation. You're just listening to it. So just imagine you're in a coffee shop listening to some people and you hear them saying things like this. I'm really not even sure if God exists. I just, I just, I can't get there. I mean, I, I kind of get it. I mean, if, if you look at the world and you look at, and, and you look at the way things are, it, it really seems like, it seems like the thing was designed, like it was intentionally put together the way it was intricately, but, but I just don't know if I can get to the God thing. That just, it seems like superstition to me. Plus, if God really did exist, then God can't be anywhere near us. God has to be some far-off deity somewhere who knows where. Because if you, if you look at the world, you look at how much of a mess of things people are making of it. Like, there's so much junk in the world. If, if, God, was, if God was 
present with us, God would do something about that, don't you think? So I don't think if there is a God, I don't know if there is, but if there is, then God has to be far off because it can't be close by because there's too much for God to fix. It just doesn't make any sense to me. To which another person replies, yeah, you know what? I think I'm in the same boat in a, in a way. I just want to be happy anyway. Like, that's what I want. I sort of live my life in this pursuit of happiness. I want to be, I want to be happy, and I can make happiness for myself. I don't need a divine being to do that for me. I, I can just do it. And then someone else chimes in and says, I think most people have, have this supreme being thing all wrong, this idea of, of God. The only supreme being in the universe is the universe. It's nature itself. I mean, if you just think about it, we're all sort of made of the same stuff. If you look at the universe and plants and animals and rocks and trees and the human body and everything else, we're all made of the same stuff, right? And the universe just keeps spinning and whirling and evolving and creating and becoming something new and fresh and beautiful all on its own. If there's a God, that's what God is. It's the universe. It's nature itself, and we're all just a part of it. It's just awesome. Now, you listening to these ideas, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's exactly who God is not. Right? And then you look over, and you accidentally lock eyes with one of them. And she notices that you've been eavesdropping and you're like, oh no, here we go. This is awkward. And then she looks at you and she asks, hey, you seem to be interested in the things that we're talking about. What do you think about all this God stuff? How do you respond? What do you say? Interesting thought experiment, isn't it? The reason I bring it up is because Paul found himself in Athens in a situation that is kind of close to that. So he's in Athens. It's a declining but influential intellectual city. He begins by having conversations with Jews in the synagogue, but eventually he finds himself out in the marketplace talking about spiritual things with perfect strangers. So, and instead of listening in on another conversation that's happening over here, another group of people is listening into his conversation, and they begin to argue with him. They begin to engage. They're Epicurean and Stoic philosophers whose basic ideas you just happen to hear in the imaginary conversation that you were listening to and eavesdropping all on in the coffee shop just a few moments ago. They challenge him. They're curious. They're wondering. They want to hear more. So they bring him out to the Areopagus, or what's known as Mars Hill. It's a bare marble hill across from the entrance to the Acropolis, and they ask him a question. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange idea to our ears, and we want to know what they mean, which is another way of asking, what do you think about all this God stuff, Paul? Like, where are you going with all this? So, before we get into what actually Paul says and how he responds to that question presented to him, 
I think it's important for us to, to, to look at what Paul does not do, right? Because the way Paul interacts with these people uh, is just as important as what he actually says, right? So notice, he doesn't make them feel foolish for believing the things that they believe. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't, like, he doesn't take out his Hebrew Scriptures and start beating them over the head with them because the Hebrew Scriptures aren't going to mean anything to these people. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't quote for them a bunch of, of verses about how they're wrong and he's right, and if they don't come over to his side of this whole conversation, then eventually they're going to they're gonna burn in a fiery hot place eternally, forever. Like, he doesn't do that at all. Now let's look at what Paul does do. He willingly goes with them. He willingly goes with them, and when he goes with them, he does so and addresses them respectfully. He says to them, people of Athens, I see that in every way, in many ways, you are very religious. Like, he's complimenting them. He values them because they're human beings. He values them because they're thoughtful, spiritual people. I love it. And if you look carefully enough, you'll notice that that he does use Scripture. But he doesn't use Scripture to try to prove anything to them. He's not trying to prove anything. He's just using it in the normal flow of conversation. They don't even know that he's doing it. So he's not trying to provide proof. He's just trying to engage with these people and get them to understand that he really, really believes this stuff. But what I think is most interesting about how Paul responds is this. He talks to them about who God is within the context of who God is not. So he's engaging in this thing that we call apophatic theology. Get that. Normally, we talk about who God is within the context of who God is. We just say, this is who God is. Listen to, listen to what he says. He says, God does not live in temples made by human hands. In verse 25, he says, God is not served by human hands as if God needed anything. In verse 29, he says, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So most of the time, we talk about God in terms of who God is, but I think that sometimes it's helpful for us to understand who God is not. This is called apophatic theology, right? By understanding who God is not, it further clarifies for us who God is. So we're going to take his who God is not statements, and we're going to look at them carefully, right? Are you ready? So we're engaging in you can find this in Eastern Orthodox theology, is, is heavy on apophatic theology. It's pretty cool. This is what he says, verse 24. God is, does not live in temples made by human hands. God does not live in temples made by human hands. So you can imagine Paul walking through the streets of Athens, and everywhere he looks, He's seeing all kinds of temples and shrines to all sorts of different kinds of gods. They're all over the place. I remember experiencing something similar when I went to India. Uh, You could walk through the streets of, of, of some towns and cities in India, and you would literally see almost some of them were just out on the street like a little, like a little, like a little kiosk. 
And you could go there, and it was to one of the Hindu gods, and you could go and you could make a sacrifice, and then you could go away. They were literally everywhere. And I remember being in that space and thinking to myself, this is really weird. Like people are just burning incense in this outdoor sort of kiosk shrine place to get the gods to do whatever they want the gods to do for them. That's really strange, right? And as I walked around, it's weird smells. It all looks really different. And then I got back here and I started noticing, oh my goodness, like we're not much different. Like it looks different. It smells different. We're used to the sights and sounds around here, but we're really not all that different. Like if you were to drive through Ames, just drive around the city of Ames, just notice how many buildings, how many religious structures there are dotting the landscape in our own city, right? Really, we're not all that different because there's something about the human spirit. There's something about, about being human that makes us want to, to sort of house the divine. There's something about us that, that makes us want to contain the divine, we want sacred spaces where we can go and experience God. We even talk about experiencing God. So we create spaces like this where we can come and go and we can experience the divine. I think it's a good thing for us to be reminded that God does not live in temples made by human hands. In other words, God cannot be contained. God does not need human ingenuity and human enterprise to endure. Right? God does not need large sanctuaries in order to be effective in this world. God does not need impressive buildings. Think of it. God is much, much bigger, much, much bigger than what we do in this building on Sunday mornings and what we do in this building throughout the week. God cannot be limited to one or two days a week. God cannot be contained in the buildings we build. God cannot be contained in, in the systematic theologies that we set up for God to try to understand God. God cannot be contained in the structures and programs we create in order to experience God. God cannot be contained. So Paul teaches the Athenians, and he reminds us, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he says, does not live in temples made by human hands. In other words, we're just as likely to bump up against the divine on the corner of South Duff and Lincoln Way or any other street corner in the whole world. We're, we're just as likely to bump up against the divine there as we are in here. If only we're paying attention, if only we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts prepared, we might just notice a little bit more. If only we're looking, God is both as far away from us as we can imagine and close to us as the air that we breathe, His presence filling the entire universe. God cannot be contained. God is much, much bigger than whatever it is that we do in this place. Here's the next who God is not statement. I don't know why, but I really like this one. Verse 25, Paul says, God is not served by human hands 
as if God needed anything, he says. God does not, is not served by human hands as if God needed as if. He uses an as if. I love it. As if God needed anything. Because he himself gives people life and breath and everything else. So let me put this very simply. God doesn't need us. God does not need us. Like, can we, can we just get to that basic level of humility? Because I think sometimes religious people, especially professional religious people like me, we walk around as if God needs us to defend God, to create things, to as if. God does, now, I know that doesn't sound nice. I know that sounds a little bit harsh. God does not need us. But it's true. Like, think about that. It's absolutely true. God is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in between. God is big. God is expansive. We talk about, when we talk about who God is, we talk about how God is is mighty. We talk about how God is powerful. We talk about how God is beyond our comprehension. There is nothing we can do for God that God can't get done all on God's own. God does not need us. Let's just get to that basic level of humility. Let's start there. But God wants us. God doesn't need us, but God wants us. See, God isn't some unknown God. Here's a, here's a shrine dedicated to the unknown God. God isn't some unknown God, some unknowable, evasive deity somewhere up there in the heavens. God is alive and active in this world. And he wants you and me and everyone else to be involved in what God is up to in the world. In fact, God created the world for the purpose of getting us in on the action. Just go back and read the Genesis creation stories again. What does God want from Adam? God wants Adam to work the ground, to name the animals to take care of the animals. God designed the world for us to participate in whatever it is that God is up to in the world. God doesn't need us, but God wants us involved. God designed it to be that way. Listen to how Paul puts it in verse 26. From one person, from one man, he made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth. Work with me here, God seems to be saying. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You're here for a reason. It's not an accident. God did this so that people would seek and perhaps find him, reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God doesn't need us. Oh, but God wants us. God wants you. 
God desires a relationship with every human being who walks on this planet of ours. In fact, God wants it so badly that he sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to show us exactly what it looks like to be a human being, to show us exactly what it looks like for us to partner with God. What does it look like? Look at Jesus. Okay, here's the third one. Final apophatic theological lesson of the morning, courtesy of Paul, who God is not. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by, God's, made by man's design, human design, and skill. In other words, we didn't form God. We don't form God. We don't, we don't design God. Because if we did design God, then we could control God and make God do whatever we want God to do. So we didn't do this. Some people think that, by the way. Lots of people think that. Sigmund Freud wrote a book called The Future of an Illusion. This is fascinating. In it, he described our belief in God as a collective neurosis. Right? Called it a longing for a father. Right? His goal was sort of to explain the, the origins of religious ideas and reveal them to be nothing more than human projection. So here's his idea. He reasoned that we sort of as we grow up, we discover that our, that our real parents, I love it that my parents are here, that my real parents, our real parents, don't have all the answers. I know that's hard to believe. They don't have all the answers. And they can't protect us from everything in this strange, dangerous, unpredictable, scary world. So we've sort of created this concept of God by projecting up into the sky a sort of superhuman parent model, right? Therefore, we know that what we think of as God is only an illusion. It's just a, a projection growing out of a deeply held desire for an all-knowing and all-powerful parent to take care of us. That's fascinating, isn't it? And to that, to that kind of thinking, Paul says this, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made up by human beings, by human design and skill. He's saying, we didn't make this God stuff up. Like, this, isn't, this isn't just an idea that we came up and formed. He says, in fact, this is the opposite of that. He even uses their language. As some of your poets have said, we are God's offspring, God's children, created by God, made in God's image. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That word repent means to just turn towards God and the idea is so that we'll be remade into the image of God to become who God intended us to be in the first place. In other words, God isn't formed by us and our skills and our imagination, but God transforms us, transforms 
us so that we can know God, so that we can be known by God, so that we can partner with God in whatever it is that God is up to in the world. So those are Paul's, who God is not, apophatic theological ruminations, right? His statements clarifying for us who God is. So the next time you find yourself in a spiritual conversation and you want to join in, maybe you'll have a way to sort of join in. God does not live in temples made by human hands. God God cannot be contained. God can't be contained. Let's start with that. God cannot be contained. Let's be humble. God, God is not served by human hands. As if God needs anything, there's another layer of humility there. But God doesn't need us, but God wants us. God is not an image made by human, man, by human beings' design and skill. God is our Father. We are God's offspring. Right? Now here's the deal. This sort of apophatic theological thinking is really fascinating for me because I think, I think we can engage in this sort of activity a little bit more often because we people have created these systems of belief and we sort of portray and, and tell the world what we think God is like by what we say and what we do, how we are in the world. And I think it's a good idea for us every once in a while to examine the things that we think about God and say about God and how we represent God to the world and wonder to ourselves, I wonder if God, I wonder if God might, I wonder if we've been making a mistake there. Like God might not be like that. Can you think of any ways in which Christians, Jesus people, represent God to the world, that you want to look at that idea and you want to look at that action and you want to say, no, God is, that's exactly who God is not. Maybe you can have a conversation later today. And here's, here's, here's your measuring stick. If it's not like Jesus... then it's not like God. If it's not done like Jesus would do it, then it's not being done the way God would do it. So we actually have the ability to look at things and ideas and actions in this world, and we can say, nope, that's exactly who God is not. Because all we have to do is look at Jesus. Let's pray.